Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. And uh, you can follow along as I read it, or uh, you can look up at the screen. And here is the words of uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's spend a moment in prayer before uh, we get into the sermon. Let's pray together. God, we thank you just for your word, and we thank you for this prayer. We thank you for the gift of prayer. And uh, uh, more than anything, uh, you know... Uh, what's going on in our lives and in our hearts. And so we pray that by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit that you would speak to each one of us in a very personal way through your word, uh, that you would also speak to us as a congregation and give us some uh, communal convictions and desires as you form and as you shape us under the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, what we're doing this fall is we are focusing on the topic of prayer and the way we're focusing on the topic of prayer is we are looking at some of the prayers in the Bible. And we have been spending a couple of weeks looking at probably one of the most famous prayers, if not the most famous prayer in the Bible, which is the Lord's Prayer. Now, uh, this past week, uh, you know, usually on Fridays, I, uh, I'm watching my, uh, my youngest daughter. And so I was just playing with her. And we have like this toy, this like a connector set, which is kind of like, you know, these plastic sticks and a ball and you kind of connect it and you make like forts or you make like little tunnels and things like that. And <coughs> I thought it was like really fascinating what uh, she was doing. You know, you need a little bit of strength to connect them. And she was just kind of playing along and, you know, she's a little younger than two. And uh, as she was like putting the pieces together, she would just make this like grunting noise like, uh, uh. But she wouldn't actually connect it together because she's not strong enough to get it. I don't, she wasn't even putting any strength in it, but I think she was just kind of imitating what I was doing, and she was going, uh, uh, because when I was playing, I was like, uh. Now, uh, I realized she wasn't trying, but she was making that noise, and she was making that grunting noise, and I think she thought that's what you're supposed to do when you try to connect these pieces. I, if some of us grew up in going to church, uh, maybe you memorized the Lord's Prayer, uh, but maybe you, don't, you didn't really... Um, draw strength from it or use the strength that is given through this prayer. Uh, maybe you kind of grew up reciting this prayer and it was something that you thought you were just supposed to do. But you know, if we really unpack the meaning of this prayer, then it's a, it's a prayer that we all uh, need to pray. Uh, it's not just something that we do externally. It's not like we just kind of do the superficial grunting noise because that's what we're supposed to do if we consider ourselves to be a Christian. But there is true power in this prayer, and there is true strength in this prayer. And this is something that uh, I hope I was able to convey in the last couple of weeks. Now, when I originally set out to do this series, I didn't intend to actually preach three sermons on the Lord's Prayer. But as I was writing the sermons, 
I realize there's actually a lot to say uh, about this prayer. And so this is the third week in a row and the final week in a row that we're going to look at this prayer. And we're simply going to just focus on verse 13, these uh, last two petitions that say, And lead us not in temp- into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, uh, <coughs> I think because uh, part of what I do is preaching and teaching, I, I tend to read a lot of books. Uh, but I actually don't read books for a second time or a third time. I rarely do that. Uh, but there, are, there is a book that I do try to read repeatedly about every year or two. Uh, because of the impact that it has on me. Uh, If I ever take some kind of personal retreat, I'll take my Bible, I'll take a little bit, I'll take a notebook, and I'll take this book with me, and I'll basically try to read it. It's like a short book. It's only probably less than 100 pages. And it's a book by a theologian named John Owen called The Mortification of Sin. And in this book, the reason I try to read this book is because for whatever reason, this book reminds me of the life and death importance of putting sin to death, of fighting sin. And he has this famous line from that book that says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And uh, I only mention that because I think Peter and Eunice wrote a song and they included that line in it, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, my, my copy of this book was getting a little bit nasty and, you know, I wrote a lot in it. And it wasn't actually a book that I bought. It was a book that somebody gave me and it was a used book. So it was already in poor shape. But about a year ago, I, I took an another one of these personal retreats, and you know, I, I, took, I actually bought a fresh copy of that book, but the fresh copy I bought also included some other books that John Owen wrote. And one of the books that he wrote is called uh, Tem- Of Temptation, The Nature and Power of It. Now, if you're somebody who's like, oh, uh, it, this book affected Pastor Sam so much, maybe I should get it, you can, you can read it, and you, I would encourage you to try to read it, but the books that I like, may not be the books that you like. You know, I was uh, trying to do some discipleship with uh, this brother maybe a couple years ago, and uh, I gave him Mortification of Sin. I was like, oh, man, this book made a huge impact on me. (laughs) He's like, "Eh." (laughs) it wasn't a great book. But for me, at least, a great book for me. So I read this book uh, of Temptation, The Nature and Power of It, about a year ago when I took this personal retreat. And uh, that had a very similar impact on me as his other book. And here's the kind of impact it had on me. Uh, basically, if there was any part of me that felt a little bit lazy and uh, I, f- I was falling asleep a little bit in terms of my own personal fight against sin and, sem- uh, sin and temptation, uh, what these books did for me is they kind of slapped me in my face and they say, wake up, Brian, get out of your slumber. Uh, you need to be vigilant in your fight against sin and temptation. And the reason I mention that is uh, that's kind of my goal today. Uh, for you all, uh, if some of us have fallen asleep and maybe we, you know, our hearts are lulled, which I think happens because we live in the flesh and maybe we don't take our sin as seriously and the fight isn't as vigorous and uh, we don't think temptation and falling into temptation is uh, something that we need to be on guard against, uh, I do hope that this is a message that, you know, shakes you awake a little bit. Now, how am I going to do that? Well, I'm not going to like yell or anything, right? Uh, I'm not going to preach any differently, but uh, I want basically the, the truth of what uh, Scripture says and the truth of what this passage says and the work of the Holy Spirit to invigorate our hearts to remember that uh, we, we live in the context of a spiritual battle, that sin is truly destructive to our souls, and we have to be very rigorous in our fight against it. Uh, Fred uh, gave a great message a couple weeks ago on temptation. 
and he looked at this topic of temptation through Jesus' experience of temptation in the wilderness uh, before the start of his ministry. And uh, since we are on a series on prayer, uh, what I thought I would do is I would focus on temptation specifically in terms of how it connects with prayer. There's this passage in Matthew 26 where uh, Jesus says something really interesting to his disciples, and this is in the context of the Garden of Gethsemane when he knows he's about to be delivered over and he's about to go to the cross, and so he's praying to God, and he asks his, pro- he asks his disciples, he basically says, you know, stay awake and, and pray, but what his disciples end up doing is they fall asleep. And in that passage, Jesus, uh, it's a very tense passage, but he says something uh, I think that's really interesting. Uh, he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, that's a really interesting statement. And by the way, that's that's the statement basically that John Owens unpacks in his book. And uh, maybe it's a little bit of a puzzling statement, especially in that particular moment. But that's what I want to look at as we think about this first petition, lead us not into temptation. And I want to lean on what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 26 when he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now first, what what exactly is temptation? Uh, The Greek word for temptation is interesting because it can be translated a couple different ways. Uh, It can be translated as testing. And sometimes we think uh, being tempted means that there is something wrong with us or uh, something is wrong with our faith, but that's not necessarily true. And uh, Fred mentioned that in his last sermon. If a temptation is like a test, then temptation itself is maybe somewhat neutral. And what it really means is our fortitude to remain faithful is undergoing some kind of test. Now, we saw a couple weeks ago that Jesus was tested, and uh, but yet, as the author of Hebrews says, uh, he was tempted, he was tested and yet he was without sin because he overcame that temptation and what jesus does as he instructs his disciples in the garden of gethsemane is he says keep watch right keep watch now what does he mean by that he's saying stay ready be on guard don't fall asleep be ready for that test and what that also means is temptation is something that we should probably always expect will come to us in our lives always Uh, When I was in seminary, you know, the language classes were, I think, the most stressful. And the reason that the language classes, the Greek and the Hebrew classes, were uh, a little more stressful is because these classes tended to be smaller and more interactive. Uh, You know, other classes, you kind of sit in this big lecture hall and you listen to somebody talk. And because of that, you know, they don't ask you questions, so your mind could kind of drift and you could kind of not pay attention and <laughs> be fully engaged in what the professor is teaching. But in a language class, you can't really do that. You know, during my last year of seminary, uh, the school made this big mistake and they got Wi-Fi. <laughs> and because they got Wi-Fi during a lecture, you, you see people, they're like browsing the internet and they're chatting online with other friends and not really paying attention. But in Greek and Hebrew classes, you couldn't really do that. Uh, because if you did that, then your failures would be very public. Everybody would know that you don't know Greek or Hebrew. Every single class, we had a quiz, and you know how the the teacher graded the quiz, at least in the class that I was in? Uh, We would take the quiz, and he says, exchange your quiz with the person next to you, right? So it's not even the teacher grading your quiz. It's like another student grading your quiz. You grade it, you go over the answers together, and then you know how he uh, records the grades? 
he calls your name out and he tells that other person who graded your quiz to tell you what grade you got, right? So very public. It's like, uh, you yeah, know, this person, this person, Sam, uh, 80. It's like, oh, <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, that's, that's kind of how the language classes were. But not only that, they would just kind of call on you at random and they would say, this verse, right, you have your Greek or your Hebrew Bible out and they would say, okay, this verse, so-and-so, uh, translate it. And you just had to be ready. And then after it translated, Professor randomly calls you and says, hey, that verse, parse it. And you just had to be ready. So you, language classes were always a little bit stressful, uh, at least for me, because your failure, the, t the test that you would undergo was something that was very public. But you know, I'll also say this. Uh, the language classes were also the classes where I, uh, I studied the most and I wanted to make sure that I knew uh, the answer and I knew the languages because, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to fail the test, especially in public. The language classes were always the ones where I felt like I had to stay ready. I think that feeling maybe of staying ready is something, is the way we should probably approach our spiritual lives and uh, be because temptation is something that we should always expect. Some kind of spiritual test we should always expect and we need to be ready so we don't fall into that temptation. But you know, the reality is Sometimes we can be like the disciples. Sometimes we can fall asleep, especially when it comes to things that maybe are not considered to be vices. Uh, I think uh, maybe we, I don't kind of have this caricature of the way uh, Satan works, and we're like, oh, uh, it's the vices that we have to be careful of. We shouldn't get too much into uh, sex or gambling or whatever is considered a vice. And therefore, we may not even be aware that we are being tested or tempted. You know, when there's so much activity in our lives, when we find ourselves to be so busy, which I think is a lot of New Yorkers, and that can be caused by things like work, it can be caused by things like our phones and our devices, it can be caused by things like our families and our children, it is very easy, I think, to fall asleep spiritually because we can be completely unaware of the, the temptations that are uh, coming to us and the temptations that we are facing. Uh, when we are tired, when we are in seasons of struggle or suffering, that might be a period of testing. And we're not aware that temptations are coming during those times, and because we're not aware of it, we may not be being faithful in order to overcome them. Personally, and this is just my opinion, I think one of the greatest temptations when our lives are either hyperactive or when we are tired or when we are suffering, probably the greatest temptation is to become more self-absorbed people, right? to be more self-focused. If we aren't on guard, then we're going to become very, very self-centered, just thinking about our own lives, our own problems, our own busyness, our own tiredness, our own suffering. And when we become self-centered people, it actually has very little benefit to the kingdom of God. Now, temptation is not necessarily all bad. Uh, it can be bad when we fail, but John Owen says these kind of tests, these temptations, it's a little bit like a knife. It can either cut meat, meaning there's a utility purpose, utilitarian purpose to it, or it can cut the throat of a man, right? That's a <laughs> nice analogy. It can be his food, or it can be his poison. It can be his exercise, or it can be his destruction. So there's a double-edged sword in terms of temptation, in terms of what it can do. When we walk through temptation with faithfulness, I think we do tend to come out stronger. For example, if you don't have a lot of money, and yet, you live generously because in that situation, maybe the temptation is to not be generous with what you have. 
if you can overcome that temptation and still be generous when you don't have a lot of money, when you live in some kind of poverty, then chances are you'll be generous when you actually do have money. Uh, my advice to college students um, is always, I know as college students, you probably don't have a lot of money. The time to be generous and to time to l- the time to learn generosity is when you don't have money. So be generous w- in college, and if you get a job, if you uh, happen to uh, make a good salary in the future, then you'll be a generous person. Uh, for those of you who with young children, uh, let me encourage you, live this season of your life with some degree of intentionality because here's the trend in a lot of churches. Uh, you start to see people in their 40s and their 50s and they're not really engaged in the spiritual community anymore. They're not really serving the church anymore. They're a little bit disconnected from the church. And you ask yourselves, Why? How do people who are maybe very uh, vigorous about serving the church in their 20s, what happened in their 40s and 50s? And I think probably what happened is, you know, they had children. You see, understandably, when you have young children, you're probably very tired, and you're probably very tired all the time. And I think the temptation during that season of your life is actually to withdraw from community, focus on the kids, stay at home, because frankly, it it is much easier to do. But, you know, during this difficult season in your life, during your most tired season in your life, if you can continue to make every effort to overcome temptations to be just, again, focused on yourself and continue to do your best to serve people, to serve the community, to give of your time, to give of your energy when you have none, then probably in your 50s, 40s, and 50s, when things get a little bit easier, you'll probably come out stronger. You see, John Owen says that every great temptation has its hour or season where it grows to a head, where it grows to a head and it becomes its most vigorous. And basically, I think we just need to be a little bit more self-reflective in our lives and ask ourselves, what season of life are we in? And recognize the kind of temptations that may be coming to a head in this particular season of our lives. Now, how do we really keep watch and stay on guard? What does that mean outside of the abstract? What does that mean practically? I think practically the Bible's answer over and over and over again is prayer. Now, you may not think that's practical because there is a mysterious element or aspect of prayer in terms of what does prayer actually do, but that is actually the Bible's answer in terms of how do we stay ready and how do we stand on guard? You know, if you look at passages that talk about the return of Jesus, (coughs) those exhortations are also similar. It says, stay on guard, be ready. Jesus can come back anytime. And staying on guard is, again, always tied to this idea of prayer. Let me give you an example. You know, in Luke 17 and 18, Jesus talks about his second coming, and then he gives this parable of the persistent widow, and it's this widow who continually, uh, you know, is asking this uh, judge for justice. And this is one of the few parables where Jesus gives the explanation as to why he's giving the parable. And he says, I'm giving you this parable to encourage you to pray. And at the end of that parable, he brings it back to this idea of the second coming. And he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find a people who are ready? Right? And he says, if you want to stay ready, if you want to stay on guard, you need to be a people in prayer. Now, there's a couple of examples of this, but... I think it's pretty certain that this idea of staying ready and staying on guard is intimately tied to the practice of prayer. Now, the problem with prayer, as I mentioned before, is there is a mysterious element to it. We don't exactly know 
uh, how prayer works or how God is going to respond to certain prayers and not to others. We may not even know how prayer can really help us with our particular temptation when we feel like a temptation is so strong. But I think rather than running, running away from the mystery of prayer, uh, we actually need to embrace it and we need to trust God and practice it. And sometimes, uh, and I say, I say this to my kids all the time, but sometimes you have to obey first before you understand. Uh, because especially my oldest daughter, she always wants to know the reason why I tell her to do something, and I, I just don't want to explain it all the time, right? So I go, you know, just listen, just obey me, and then uh, you'll understand later, right? Sometimes I think we have to approach faith like that too. We don't always understand the ways of God, but sometimes we just have to trust what the Bible says and do what the Bible says, and I think understanding comes later, and I think prayer is certainly one of those things. Now, how do we stay on guard with respect to our temptation. There may be other things that we ought to be doing, but the one thing that is clear is we should be praying. And we should pray prayers like what we see here in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Now, the second part of verse 13 is also important and related to temptation, and it says, deliver us from evil. Now, there's a little bit of uncertainty about uh, how to translate even this petition as well. Deliver us from evil and uh, maybe some of you, uh, I wonder if you grew up learning this prayer, maybe some of you learned it as deliver us from the evil one. Perhaps you did. If you look in your uh, Bibles, sometimes there's a footnote that offers an alternate translation, deliver us from the evil one. And the reason is because, again, in the Greek, it's a little bit ambiguous. Um, uh, I don't know. Ten-second Greek lesson. So, you know, in Greek, nouns uh, are oftentimes uh, missing uh, after an adjective because unlike English, adjectives have a gender. So for example, uh, if you wanted to say something like the nice man, uh, in the Greek, it would probably say the nice, and it wouldn't say man, but because Greek has a gender, it would say the nice in the masculine gender, and then you kind of insert the noun there and say the nice man. Well, here, uh, it, it saves a little space in writing. So you don't always have to include the noun, but you can see that there's some ambiguity if the context doesn't make it clear. And this is one of those cases where it says, Literally, deliver us from the evil, and it could be the evil one, or it could actually just be evil. Both translations are acceptable, and the context doesn't exactly make it super clear. Now, uh, if I, I don't have a really strong opinion as to the way we should translate it, but if I'm going to lean in a certain direction, I would lean towards a transla translation that says, deliver us from the evil one. Now, there is a spiritual dimension to life that I think Western people don't always recognize, and the consequence is that uh, we may not really think about what Satan is doing in our lives. Uh, we may not think about the active role that Satan is playing in terms of leading us away from faith and leading us away from God. Now, I said before, temptation is not necessarily bad, but there is another dimension or another aspect to temptation that involves the work of Satan. 1 Timothy 6, 9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then 1 Timothy 3, 7, when it's talking about an elder, it says this, An elder must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, it's, it's really interesting that when Paul is talking about temptation, he uses this image of a snare. A snare. What is a snare? Well, a snare is like a trap, and it is used to catch animals, maybe like a bird. 
And basically what you do with a snare is you lure some kind of animal with some kind of treat, some kind of food, and once the animal goes for that treat or some that kind of food, then bam, the snare does its job and it captures the animal. And what Paul is basically communicating in the illustration here is you have to believe that what Satan is doing is he is laying these kinds of traps, that there are snares around us all the time, and we have to assume that we are not always aware of the kinds of snares that are being laid before us. You see, if you want some uh, insight into this, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, is really helpful and really insightful, but let me just give you some of my personal observations in retrospect. Uh, where I have, I can see the, the cunning work and the craftiness of Satan. You know, how do you get someone to turn away from the gospel, especially somebody who has uh, been in the church for a long time? One thing you can do is make them more religious, right? You can make them focus on the commands, make them focus on the rules, make them focus on the fact that they are so good at keeping these commands and keeping these rules so that they begin to feel like they are good, moral, and righteous people. And in the process, what happens? Maybe they lose less, maybe they have less love, less graciousness, less compassion, less gospel truth. That's a crafty way to get people to move away from the gospel. How do you get someone to believe that God is not good? Well, you probably don't just say it and say, God is not good. That's probably not convincing or crafty enough, but maybe you jeer at God. Maybe you jeer at things that God commands of his people. You say things like, God says sex should be confined within a covenantal marriage relationship? Really? What era are you living in? You, you, you think that the Bible is God's word to us? Really? You see, it's the same tactic that Satan uses in the Garden of Eden when he says, basically implies, God said you can't eat that tree? Really? And what that does in a very subtle way is it plants the seeds within our hearts that says, yeah, God said I can't eat this tree. What the heck? Maybe God doesn't want what is ultimately good for me. That's craftiness. Sometimes Satan plays the long game. You know, I remember hearing a sermon, and this person was telling the story of a man uh, who was in prison for a hit and run, and uh, he ended up killing someone. And basically in this interview, he was just reflecting on how he ended up in prison. And he said when he was younger, uh, he broke something in his house, and his father lined up all the children and, and said, you know, who did it? And he basically lied, and he didn't confess what he did. And essentially when he was younger, he got away with it. And he said the reason why he was in prison that day is because he was given all these little tests throughout his life, and he did not pass those little tests so that when the big test came and when he hit somebody and he could have stopped and faced what he did, but rather what he chose to do is run away. And the person that he hit ended up dying and he ended up going to prison. You see, I think we have to be aware and realize that uh, big tests, small tests, they all matter. And sometimes it's the, the failures of a small test that are really setting up a failure of a big test in the future and we have to be aware that Satan could be actually playing the long game with some of us. And you see, just as important as it is to be on guard against temptation, it is just as important to keep watch against the evil one, against the devil. First Peter 
Uh, 5.8 says this, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, I'm in, uh, if you follow football, uh, I, I am a New York Jets fan, and I will say, thankfully, they're not playing today, and this is their bye week, because they're not very fun to watch. But uh, if you follow football at all, I heard, you know, what teams like to do during their bye week, during the week that they're not playing, is they like to scout themselves, and they like to look at their own team as if they're the opponent and see how opponents may try to exploit their weaknesses. If you're in business at all, uh, I learned uh, there's this term called uh, SWOT, S-W-O-T, it's SWOT analysis, and uh, what that stands for is strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, and basically a SWOT analysis is supposed to give you some insight on things that a particular organization or company or business should work on in order to function well. And if people do these kinds of things in sports and in business, why would we not do it when it comes to spiritual matters, right? We should be watchful. We should be a little bit reflective. We should scout ourselves. We should do a SWOT analysis <laughs> on ourselves <laughs> and the way that we are constructed and the certain desires in our hearts. And think about what are some of the ways that Satan is going to attack us and try to exploit some of our weaknesses to bring us to a point of falling into temptation. Now, if we stop there, we would be missing a big piece of the story with respect to temptation and with respect to Satan. You know, the Lord's Prayer, it asks for deliverance. And in praying for that, it's basically saying, rescue us, liberate us, save us. And the way God answers that prayer brings us really back to the Garden of Gethsemane, where we started in the beginning. In order for God to deliver us from evil, Jesus himself would have to be delivered over to evil. Matthew 26, 1, Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. When Judas meets with the chief priests, he asks them, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? Matthew 27, 2, it says Jesus was bound up and led away and delivered over to Pilate. When Jesus was hung on a cross, the chief priests, scribes, and elders mocked him and says he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now. And we know what happens, right? God doesn't deliver him. Jesus stays, and he hangs upon the cross. He receives the punishment for our sin so that we would be delivered in the good way. So that we wouldn't be delivered over to death, but we would be delivered and rescued unto life. Now, that's essentially the gospel message, but that does make a world of difference when we think about our own temptation and how we face evil in the world. That makes a difference when we think about our spiritual battle against the evil one, you see, it means this. Since we have been delivered through the cross, we actually can resist temptation. We can actually resist temptation from a position of strength rather than a position of weakness. And if you're somebody that is going through a lot of temptation, and sometimes it feels like, ah, it's just too strong, it's just too strong, I can't overcome it. But the good news of the gospel is you can. Not because of your strength, not because of your will, but because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Now, I know it's one thing to hear it, but it's another thing to see it. And uh, the way I want to end this message is, uh, I want to end with the book of Revelation. And I did this last week, but I love the book of Revelation because it's such a visual book. 
and it paints such vivid pictures of some spiritual truths. And one of my favorite uh, chapters in the book of Revelation is Revelation chapter 12. And hopefully, if I ever get an opportunity, I would love to preach on Revelation chapter 12. And here's the picture. In some ways, uh, it's probably better to just kind of close your eyes and visualize it rather than to just like, you know, listen to it as if you're reading a history book. But here, here's the image. There is this great war that is taking place in heaven between the great dragon who is called the devil and between Michael and the angels of God. And this great war is taking place in heaven. And Satan, he is thrown down. And what it says is he is conquered by the blood of the lamb, meaning that Jesus' death on the cross is what delivers this great blow to Satan. Satan receives this great blow. And as a result, his response is to get really angry and to attack the church with great vigor. Why? Because he knows his time is short. He knows his time is short. In the book of Revelation, the devil attacks and attacks with great vigor. And the way he does it is in two ways, or at least two ways. The first way he attacks is by way of the beast, which is by way of outward oppression and persecution and actually killing people in the church and throwing people in the church in prison. The second way he attacks is by way of the prostitute, and those attacks are related to the lusts and the desires of our hearts, of the flesh. And, you know, in a way, it's actually very parallel to the visions of George Orwell and Aldous Huxley. Uh, George Orwell, uh, he envisioned a future where big government or big, gov uh, big brother would uh, be the end of us. Aldous Huxley envisioned a future where it's the things that we loved that would ultimately destroy us. And I think we see both tactics being used in the world, both tactics being used in the global church. Now, here in the West, probably we see Satan attacking through the spirit of the prostitute by exercising, by drawing out the, the idols of our hearts, the loves of our hearts, the lusts of our hearts. And what this picture says is Satan has been delivered a major blow. He has been thrown down, and he knows it's just a matter of time between be before final defeat comes. That's an image that maybe a materialistic Western uh, mindset is not super comfortable with, but that is what's happening cosmically and spiritually in the spiritual realms, that the devil has been delivered a major blow through Jesus' death on a cross, and therefore, victory is coming. Satan knows his time is short. God knows his time is short. And we as a church should know the time, his time is short. And because of that, we can fight from a position of strength. It's like fighting a war, uh, knowing that the war is going to be won. It's like playing a basketball game, knowing what the end score is going to be. It's like playing a football game, knowing who's going to win in the end. Uh, you play with a sense of strength knowing what the outcome is going to be. Well, spiritually speaking, that's the age we live in now. Satan is still attacking with great vigor, attacking the church with great vigor, attacking you and I with great vigor, tempting with great vigor. But he will lose in the end and Christ will be victorious. So let's... Uh, Let's do a SWOT analysis. <laughs> <laughs> what season of life are you in? I, you know, youth has its own temptations. Middle age has its own temptations. Um, being elderly has its own unique temptations. 
Certain industries have its own temptations. Certain careers have its own temptations. What, what is your SWOT analysis? Right? Certain personalities have its own temptations. How would Satan exploit your weaknesses? And let's begin to pray, God, help me to fight against these temptations. Let's pray together.